0: Friends, what a great truth we have just sung. The thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope, attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. I pray that as we go into this week, um, our hearts uh, would meditate on the hope we have in the Lord. And as we gather every Sunday It is not only, we gather only to sing, we gather not only to pray, we gather to hear God's word, and we gather to encourage one another to hope and trust in the Lord. What a joy it is to be gathered here this morning to do that. This past week was particularly difficult for our entire nation, as the entire nation watched under our own eyes the devastation brought about by the largest flood in American history. An article this week Stated that 25% of the people of the state of Texas have been affected by the storm and the floods. 25% of the state. This time is a great opportunity for us to ask, where do we put our hope in as we seek restoration, as we seek to, to recover? This morning, as we are looking at God's Word, I'd like to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 18, We'll be reading from verse 1 to chapter 20, verse 20. Isaiah chapter 18, 1 through 20, 20. As you are opening your Bibles there, if you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring a Bible this morning with you, we encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you. They're black-looking covered uh, Bibles. Uh, You may find uh, this passage in those few Bibles on page number 580. We encourage you to open God's Word, follow along as we read it, Uh, This will be a longer passage of Scripture. Uh, For those of you who are brand new to our congregation, we are currently going through a sermon series through the book of Isaiah, and uh, we are covering larger chunks uh, these weeks. But here's God's word for us this morning. Isaiah chapter 18, verse 1. Ah, land of wiring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea in vessels of Epirus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look. When a trumpet is blown, hear. Hear. For thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. They shall all of them be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will summer on them, and all the beasts of the earth will winter on them. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts, from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians and they will fight each against another and each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel. And they will inquire of the idols, and the sorcerers, and the medians, and the necromancers. And I will give over the Egyptians to the hand of a hard master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. And the waters of the sea will be dried up, and the rivers will will be dried and parched, And its canals will become foul. And the branches of Egypt's Nile will diminish and dry up. Reeds and rushes will rot away. There will be bare places by the Nile, on the brink of the Nile. And all that is sown by the Nile will be parched, will be driven away, and will be no more. The fishermen will mourn and lament. All who cast a hook in the Nile... And they will languish who spread nets over the water. The workers in combed flax will be in despair. And the weavers of white cotton, those who are the pillars of the land, will be crushed. And all who work for pay will be grieved. The princes of Zoan are utterly utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh give stupid counsel. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, a son of the ancient kings? Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools, and the princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger. The Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of those cities will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. And a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord, and He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing. In the midst of the earth whom the lord of hosts has blessed saying blessed be egypt my people and assyria the work of my hands and israel my inheritance in the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by sargon the king of assyria came to ashdod and fought against it and captured it at that time The Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the cushites exiles both the young and the old naked and barefoot with buttocks uncovered the nakedness of egypt then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of cush their hope and of egypt their boast and the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day behold this is what has happened to those in in whom we hoped and to whom We fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we, escape? Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you ask the Lord with me in prayer to speak to our hearts through the preaching of this passage. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father, you are a God mighty to address your people and to address what they fear, and to challenge what they put their hopes in. Father, as we are looking at this passage, would you help us to challenge ourselves by your truth? Would you speak to our hearts in a way that, we, that would redirect what we put our hope in, so that our hope may be fully placed in you? Would you speak to us? through the power of the Holy Spirit that is present among us, and for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, we have uh, read this longer text of Scripture that is full of uh, images of words that God has spoken about two lands, the lands of Cush and the land of Egypt. As we look at this text that addresses these nations, uh, we may wonder, you may wonder, What does this ancient text that is written about 2,700 years before us, what does this have to do with us today in the 21st century? Uh, Their challenges that they dealt with specifically historically seem so far removed from ours today. Yet, friends, as we consider this text more carefully, and especially the concluding verse of this passage, Namely, verse 20, I mean, chapter 20, verse 20, we will see how relevant this text is for us. In one way, the ultimate aim of this passage of these three chapters center in or zoom in in chapter 20, verse 20. We get the ultimate uh, aim of what this passage is, is, is challenged, is, is purposed to accomplish in the hearts of God's people, then and now. It's this: Behold. This is what happened to those in whom we hoped. Israel, and Judah in particular, had put their hopes in various surrounding alliances to try to get them out of trouble. And here God gives them a picture of what happens to the very people in whom they tried to put their hope in. Behold, this is what happened in those in whom we hoped. And then the question is, and we, if it happened to them that way, we, how shall we escape? This entire passage challenges to examine ourselves. Who are we putting our hope in for our security, for our protection, for our well-being, for our future? are four points that this passage challenges us as it as it aims to to redirect our hearts to put our hope in the Lord. Four reasons why we should put our hope in the Lord from this passage. Here's the first reason why we should put our hope in the Lord. Because the Lord is the sovereign one. The Lord is the sovereign one. This uh, first, first part of our passage speaks about the land of Cush. At the time of Isaiah, the land of Cush, was a region south of Egypt, uh, what we would call modern-day Ethiopia. Commentators point out that in 715 BC, the Ethiopian king mastered Egypt so that the land of Cush joined with the land of Egypt, and together they were preparing to rival against Assyria. The king of Cush, in particular, sent out messengers to the surrounding smaller nations, to seek their support against Syria, this is a picture we get in verse one in chapter 18. Ah, land of wearing wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea. The strategy was the strategy was, can we fight together against the common enemy? But in verse two, Isaiah gives a response to these messengers. Actually, Isaiah gives a response that the messengers can take back to the nations who send them. Actually, Isaiah's response to these messengers is for the people of the Lord to hear. So they hear what the Lord is purposing against Cush and against Egypt. The people of Cush were known to be the tall and the smooth. Along with Egypt, they were indeed a nation mighty and conquering. Uh, They were the only ones... Politically speaking, militarily speaking, who might have been able, realistically, to stand against Assyria at that that time. If anyone dared to stand against Assyria, it would have been Cush and Egypt. Yet, even though Isaiah gives these messengers a message to take back to the people of Cush and Egypt, in verse 3, we see that all the inhabitants of the world ought to listen to the message that God has for these messengers. In verse 3, listen, all the inhabitants of the world. And in verse 4, we get the message for this worldwide audience. What are we supposed to hear? You and I, what are we supposed to hear from this message? Look at verse 4. For thus says the Lord, or thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look for my dwelling. Like a clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. Down below, among the nations of the earth, the messengers are trying to raise up support and to get the smaller nations to join against this, uh, against this force of Assyria. All these nations were growing in anxiety and in preparation to resist and to fight off Assyria. But God's reaction to all this, up above, what God is doing, he is just looking quietly. Quietly. So I want you to picture God quietly looking below. He is not fretting about what the nations are fretting. God is not in a crisis mode when the people of the earth are in a crisis mode. I wonder if there is an area of your life where you feel a crisis rising up. Or you, you already feel neck deep into a crisis already. Friends, God is not fretting about the crisis that we are experiencing. Now, God's quiet look does not mean that he is far removed and uninvolved. In verse 5, we see a picture of a harvest being cut off right before it's fully ripe. This is a picture of God's ability to intervene before the human plans come to fruition. The Assyrians will indeed seek to invade Judah But God will remove them. God will not let their plans come to fruition. In other words, it is God who will intervene to put a stop to a serious conquest of God's people in Judah. Now, who will be the winner in this scenario? Cush down below is rising up. It's, It's trying to rally up troops. But the winner in this scenario God says God will intervene with the human plans and will not let Assyria win over God's people. So who's going to win in this, scenario, in this mess? Well, it will not be Cush. Here's how we know that Cush will not be no winner. Because in verse 7, Cush is presented as bringing a bribe. I mean, I'm sorry, not a, tri- a tribute, not a bribe, a tribute. And, and, and the sign of bringing a tribute is always, especially in the aftermath of of being conquered, it's the nation who lost who brings the tribute. That's very common sense. The nation who loses the war is the one who's going to be bringing tribute. But who will they bring tribute to? It's not Assyria, but the Lord. The Lord. Look at verse 7. At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth. From a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering. The very nation who sent out the messengers is now presented as paying tribute. And it's not Assyria, but the Lord. The Lord is the victorious one in this passage. The people of Cush were going to realize who is truly the sovereign one in this scenario. It's not Assyria, and it won't be even themselves. The sovereign one is the Lord. That's why verse 7 closes the message concerning Cush with this picture that they, the nation of Cush, will bring tribute to the Lord. Friends, we need to be reminded, especially after a week like the one we have just been in, that in times of crisis, God is not in a crisis. He acts powerfully. Even when we think he doesn't, no human crisis is beyond God's ability to deal with. The picture of god looking quietly communicates not his lack of involvement but his power to govern all things friends put your hope in the lord because he is the sovereign one you may think that you are in control you may think that your plans or your efforts will bring about your desired outcome but in the end it is the lord who will receive tribute even from the people who have not sought him. If a self-confident and mighty nation like Cush is presented as paying tribute to God, in the end, we should take warning, especially if we feel confident that we won't have to submit to anyone. There are people here, perhaps even this morning in in our congregation, you feel like, I don't need to submit to anyone. I can lead my life the way I want to friends, you may think that way now. But a time will come when you will realize you won't able to do it forever. Consider this challenge. Consider this, this story of, of God's message to Cush. We do and will have to give an account to our Creator. Put your hope in the Lord because He is the Sovereign One. The second reason why we should put our hope in the Lord is because the Lord tears down. The Lord tears down. The next oracle in our text is addressed specifically to Egypt. Uh, This oracle is unique from all the other oracles because it presents the Lord visiting Egypt himself. Look at verse 1 in chapter 19. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. In no other previous oracle have we seen God visiting the people he is judging. The picture of God riding on a swift cloud? Friends, can you imagine that just in light of this past week? The cloud is the means by which the Lord comes to a nation. Imagine that. Imagine the force of that. And all of that, as if it was a horse, and the rider on the horse tells the horse where to ride, in the same way that the cloud is under God's control, and the cloud goes wherever the Lord wants it to go. The power of God. And God is visiting this nation of Egypt by by, by coming on on the cloud, and God's visitation of Egypt clearly brings terror Notice, however, who are the first who tremble when God visits the land of Egypt? Verse 1, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. Oh, friends, this gives us a hint about why God is visiting Egypt in the first place. God is against the religion of Egypt because they're idols, the false gods of Egypt. The Egyptians thought that their gods were protecting them, providing for them. And God visits Egypt to show that nation that their gods are not able to withstand the majesty of God and the power of God. In other words, God's visitation of Egypt and the destruction he brought had a spiritual purpose. The destruction God brings against Egypt is all rooted in their religion because they were worshiping idols, false gods. From verses 2 to 15, we see a a little description of what God will do against Egypt itself. Uh, God will cause internal, internal turmoil in the nation, civil strife between people, between cities, between kingdoms. In verse 3, the Egyptians will seek to deal with their crisis, not by inquiring of God, but by going to their false idols, to the magicians. But that will bring no solution. Their plight will only get worse. And they will fall under a ruthless master. In verses five through ten, God's judgment affects the entire economy of the country. The waters of the sea, the Nile are dried up. For Egypt, the Nile was like this the, the pillar of their economy. And God is drying it up as a picture. Don't think of it here physically, but as a picture that God will confound their economy entirely. The workers in flax and cotton industry will despair. In verse 10, all workers will be grieved. Imagine that. All workers of a nation to be grieved. In verse 11 through 15, God will affect the spirit of the wise men in Egypt. Pharaoh's counselors will give foolish counsel. They will make Egypt stagger. Isaiah wants us to know that it's not simply because uh, because of their foolishness that they will stagger. It's because the Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion. Look at verse 14. It's the Lord who brings about that foolishness in them. They will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds. Friends, one of the reasons why we are called to pray for the leaders of our nation. It's because God is able to put in them either a spirit of clarity or a spirit of confusion and foolish counsel. Pray for the leaders of our nation. Whether you agree with them or not, that's not the point. Pray, good or bad as they are, that God would work through the leaders of our nation. Point of all of this is that God will visit Egypt to bring about in Egypt to bring about ruin. Now you say, why does God want to to ruin Egypt. It's because of their idols. God is showing Egypt that her idols are worthless. This was a painful lesson for Egypt to learn. It's not that God delights in destruction, but God wants Egypt to see how worthless her idols are. Oh, friends, and that truth is the same for us as well. When we attach our hearts to idols, when we begin worshiping something other than God, we can bring that can bring us to experience uh, emptiness and shame to show us that the idols we have pursued are worthless god is able to bring about those experiences friends there's nothing there's nothing in our lives that god cannot bring to ruin to shame and to emptiness consider whatever idols you are tempted to worship as we are continuing to hear of of the devastating reports of Harvey, let that devastation be a wake-up call for us, that the idol of materialism cannot protect us. Let it be a reminder that physical security, big homes, more things that we own, cannot protect our lives. They may bring joy and satisfaction for a while, but they will not bring ultimate protection, neither in this world, nor for eternity. Friends, don't think of, of God as enjoying to destroy just by itself. Oh no, no. In our text, God is doing all this destruction and ruining so that it becomes evident that the idols that we worship are hopeless and worthless. Friends, are there idols in your life? You. You need to turn away from. Perhaps the greatest idol in your life is you. Your reputation, your self-image, your desire for control, your high view of your own opinions. Calvin, the great reformer, said that our hearts are a factory of idols. The Lord is able to bring anyone and anything to a place where he shows us that our idols are worthless. Friends, such, pain, such experiences are always painful. The hearts of the, of the Egyptians melted within them. It is never, never pleasant when God attacks our idols. But it is for our eternal good that he does it. The gods, the God who visits Egypt... Uh, does not stop merely at destruction. The third point that we learn about putting our hope in the Lord and why we should put our hope in the Lord is not only that he tears down, the third point is the Lord restores and rebuilds. This is one of the high points in this oracle against uh, Egypt. God's planned judgment against them is the prequel to the salvation that he desires to bring to them. Friends, if you are not a Christian, first of all, we are so delighted that you're with us this morning. We're we're glad that you came to visit and be a part of of the service. But I want to make sure you understand that this pattern of judgment and restoration, or judgment and salvation, is at the heart of the gospel message that we Christians proclaim. The gospel is is a message that God has created all, all mankind in his image and likeness. And because he created us, he has the right to tell us our purpose. He owns us. He designed us for the way that he wants us to live like. But we, mankind, have rebelled against God. We have acted against him. We have rebelled against his word. Because of that, we rightly deserve God's judgment and eternal wrath. Because God is a good God, He judges rebellion and sin and evil. But God in his mercy did not leave judgment to be the last word he has for humanity. In his grace, he also provided a means of restoration so that mankind could be restored, could escape the eternal judgment of God and be restored to God. And that means of restoration is through Jesus Christ, The son of God who came to live a perfect life, was crucified, cursed by God. Three days later, he was resurrected from the dead. And now sits with the Lord in heaven and will come back to judge the living and the dead. Friend, the only reason we can proclaim this gospel of salvation is because God has judged sin and made full payment for it by making his son, his only son Jesus, die on the cross as a substitute for all those who would repent and trust in Jesus for their salvation. Friends, God on the cross already made judgment, executed. But instead of executing that judgment on us as we would deserve it, he executed it in his son, Jesus. And on the third day when Jesus rose up from the grave, He not only proved that the payment was fully made for all those who would return to Him. Jesus, by His resurrection, proved that everything He promised, He said, He aimed to do, was true because He is the Son of God. Oh friends, if you are not a Christian, I want to encourage you to consider this great news that God has judged sin in Christ Jesus so that you can hear a message of restoration and hope And a call to salvation through this jesus the only reason we can proclaim the gospel is because there is judgment already but friends be aware that if you choose to ignore this gospel invitation you remain under the judgment of god that's why we want to encourage you if you're not a christian this morning encourage you to repent of your sin trust that jesus is alone alone is the only means by which you can be restored to God if you'd like to know more about that I would love to talk to you at the end of service or I would encourage you to talk to someone you came with and find out more about that but he alone Jesus alone is able to save us because he received the full judgment of God on the cross friends that pattern we will see now uh, laid out in the rest of this chapter from verses 16 to 20 we will see how God will restore The very land that he came to judge and destroy. The section of restoration is divided in in five subpoints. All of them are introduced by the phrase in that day. I wonder if you noticed in that day, showing up five times in verse 16, verse 18, verse 19, verse 23, and verse 24. What will happen in that day? Well, the, the things that are described here are like a pattern of how God restores his, uh, this nation in particular. For what will happen in that day? What's, what's involved in God's plan of restoration? First of all, the fear of God. The fear of God. Look at verses 16 and 17. Everyone who turned to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. Friends, don't be surprised by what I'm saying. God's restoration begins with people fearing God. They will come to recognize that they cannot withstand God's purposes against them. God's restoration does not skip this experience of fear. The state of fear of God is part of God's recipe to restore us. As the line in the song of Amazing Grace that we have sung earlier, one of the lines of that song says, "'Twas grace." That taught me how to fear. Friends, I wonder if you recognize that our sins, if they remain undealt with, bring us under the eternal judgment of God. And we come to know of the reality of that because God reveals it to us in His Word, and the grace of God opens our hearts to believe that warning. So we begin. The process of restoration by first fearing God. God's restoration does not stop with fear. If we go on to verse 18, we see that uh, the, the people of Egypt are starting to learn a new language. And it's not their native language. It's a new language. Instead of Egyptian, they're starting to learn and to talk the language of Canaan. And they also have a new allegiance So that the next step in in the process of restoration is a new language and a new allegiance uh, to the Lord, to a new Lord. The fact that the cities of Egypt will begin speaking the language of Canaan and show submission to God shows signs that God is beginning to work among them. Remember at the Tower of Babel, God responded to the rebellion of mankind by dividing up their languages? Here, When God is bringing back the nations, he is giving them a common language. That is why when we get to Acts chapter 2 and the day of Pentecost, they are all hearing their message in one language. Because God, in the restoring of his people, he is reversing. He is reversing the curse of rebellion that started with Babel. God is giving his people, Egypt, a new language and a new allegiance. Then in, 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 the, in verse 19, a third element of this restoration is a new worship. Look at verse 19. In that day, there will be a new altar to the Lord in the midst of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its borders. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. Friends, altars were a visible sign of what people worshipped. This time in the land of Egypt, in the center of the land. There is erected, there's there's built up a new altar, and it's not to the Egyptian gods. It is to the Lord. And the Egyptians will start bringing sacrifices, not to their idols, but to the Lord. And there's the, the pillars. The pillars are at the border of Egypt. That shows between the altar in the center and the pillar at the end, the border of Egypt, it shows that there's a witness that the entire land of Egypt is turning to the Lord. And when the Egyptians will start turning to the Lord, Notice what God will do for them. In verse 20, the Lord will send them a savior, a defender. In verse 21, when they, the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and Egypt will come to know the Lord. I love the quote that uh, Alec Motier, one of the commentators, said, true religion is not people searching after God, but people responding To the revealed truth. It's not that we find our way in whatever we find helpful. It's that we must respond to the revealed truth of the true God. And here God promises that he will reveal himself to Egypt. And after that self-revelation to Egypt, Egypt will come to know the Lord. And their knowledge of the Lord will lead them to worship the Lord. To bring sacrifices to the Lord. That was their public worship than to make vows to the Lord and to fulfill them. That was their private worship. In other words, the people of Egypt will turn to the Lord, will turn their life around, and they will show it both publicly and privately. Friends, God desires us to worship him both publicly, what we do here on Sunday, gathering every week, both in the morning and in the evening, and also our, our private worship, what we do privately in our, in our homes when we, when we scatter throughout the week. It's not, true religion is not just private and it's not, or it's not just public. It's both private and public. It's both internal and external. In verse 22, their worship of the true God will also embrace God's discipline. Look at verse 22 and 23. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord and they will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. Friends, God's discipline is a sign of His parental love for His children. God's people don't run away from God's discipline. Being in God's family doesn't mean that we are excused of God's discipline. No, quite the opposite. God's discipline is present to bring us back to Him when we stray away. That's why one of the signs of a healthy church is the presence of discipline in the midst of the congregation. But friends, God's discipline is followed by God's mercy to heal his people if they return from their ways and seek mercy. Uh, There are people who seek God's mercy without wanting to turn from their ways. And that's not possible. God's mercy is always connected with returning to the Lord, not apart from it. People who want God's mercy while refusing to return to the Lord won't be able to have it. God's mercy is for the sake of leading people to return to him. All of that makes these, these people into an active, ongoing experience of worship, both public and private, in the knowledge of the Lord. And, and the last part that we see in, in what's restore, God's restorative act as he restores Egypt, not only do we see a new, uh, a new worship, but we see a new unity. A new unity. In that day, look at verse 23. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Friends, in the time of Isaiah, the two greatest superpowers was Assyria rising up and Egypt being the only one thinking that they can withstand them. These were the two gorillas, if you will, on the on the landscape of human history in 700 bc but now we have here a different picture it's not a picture of war it's a picture how the biggest rivals are presented as living in harmony with one another the picture of a highway shows a real connection between these empires their unity is made visible by the fact that they spend Time together, they visit each other. They visit each other. These former rivalries are replaced by genuine and visible harmony. And their harmony and unity is based on a common worship. They will worship together. It is their worship that is the foundation of their unity. Worship is what draws them together. Egypt has turned to God, as we have seen. And now Egypt is drawing Assyria and together they're worshiping the same God. Even though these used to be enemies, now they are accepting one another because of what the Lord has done to restore them. Friends, this is why unity among Christians is such a big deal. It's a display of God's power to restore us and it's a first fruit of that restoration. When we live, In broken relationships with other fellow believers? Friends, it provides a false advertisement of what God's restoration is about. When God restores us to Himself, He restores us to one another. Our first two membership covenant vows speak of this. We will will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Friends, are you doing that? Are you are you working and praying? For the unity of the spirit among us through the bond of peace. We will be devoted to one another in brotherly love. With humility and gentleness, we will patiently bear with each other. Forgiving, encouraging, and building one another up. Exercising watchfulness over one another. Dear brothers and sisters, don't take the health of your relationships with other believers lightly. They are a great part of what God does to restore his people. And then we see in the last, in that day, we see not only a new, uh, a new unity, we see a new identity. In verse 25, it is amazing that it's not only Egypt and Assyria, but now Israel is part of this, this conglomerate of, of fellowship and harmony. And what actually makes verse 25 shocking is the titles that are described to Egypt and Assyria. Egypt, my people. Really, God? Really? In the Exodus, God made a clear distinction between his people and Egypt. And God judged Egypt with the ten plagues, and God judged the idols of Egypt. But here's God's beautiful act of mercy. He gets to a place where the very people who were the enemies of Israel, the ruthless masters of Israel, are now given a new identity my people. And Assyria, who was a rival enemy against God's people as well, are being called the work of my hands. And together, Assyria, Israel, Egypt are all given the status that was given in the Old Testament only to Israel all of that is now given to the very enemies of the people of God, and together they are called blessed? Oh, friends, I hope you can see the mercy of God in extending the very enemies of God, the same identity, the same status, the same restoration. God will challenge Egypt's idols and worshipers, but then God will restore and give full, full blessings to the nations who are opposing God's people. Friends, God brings low so that he can rebuild us in his image. Sin sought us to build us up, but it destroyed us and leaves us in our corruption. God breaks us in our sin so that he can rebuild us into his image. Friends, all that is to show that God is able both to tear down and to restore and build up. And finally, the last point of this passage is that God is ready to act. God is ready to act. In chapter 20, we are reminded that the harmony that God promised between Israel, Egypt, and Assyria is going to be a very future reality. That in the immediate term, in the immediate fulfillment, in Isaiah's day, God began to act, but he's beginning to act was the first part of this whole restorative process, and it was a part of discipline and judgment. Chapter 20, verse 1, we see that God tells Isaiah um, around the time of the fall of Ashdod to start walking barefoot as a sign of what God will do to Egypt and to Cush. And God tells him in verse tw- in 3 and 4 that the captives of Egypt and Cush will be led away by Assyria just as Isaiah walked among them. How many of us, how many of us, when we hear this, we would say, God, I want you to act. But could you escape the tearing down part? Could we just skip over that and just go to the restoration part right away? And what we see in this passage is that the restoration is still, the full restoration is still a future reality. And God's readiness to act, he acts by tearing down. This is the most hurtful, the most painful part. Friends, in God's providence, his act of tearing down often come before his act of restoration. Friends, if the Lord is tearing down areas in your life, it is only that he can rebuild up something more beautiful, more long-lasting, more peaceful. The announcing of this message leaves God's people dismayed and ashamed. Behold, this is what happened to those in whom we have hoped. Friends, are there areas of your life in which you are setting your hopes in idols, in security, in of our future, of our well-being, in, in in whatever idols they are? Those idols could be people. Those idols could be yourself. Those idols could be the things that you cherished above God. Remember Isaiah two, 2 chapter two, verse twenty-two. God said to Isaiah at the very beginning of the book, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? Friend, this message is is one that we as Christians ought to learn. Even today, putting our hope in something other than the Lord, in what we can do, in what people can do, in what we can control, in how we want things to be done, is a constant struggle of our hearts. Our natural instincts are not bent. To put our hope in the Lord. But today, we're encouraged by the word of God. Put your hope in the Lord. Why? Because he's a sovereign Lord. Why? Because he is a Lord who is able to tear down. Why? Because he is a Lord who will restore. Why? Because he is a Lord who will rebuild. Why? Because he is a Lord who is ready to act. Would we put our hope in the Lord? Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would indeed bring our idols to ruin. Help us to see the emptiness of things that we may have put our hope in other than you. Lord, give us the strength to endure that pain, knowing that it is for our eternal good. And Lord, secure our hearts, strengthen our hearts, that we may see you in your majesty, in your sovereignty, that we may put our hope fully in you. In the name of the Lord we pray for his glory and honor. Amen.